We are going to continue our series tonight on the spirit of error, looking at what the Bible has to say about cults or the, the concept of those who would call something Christian, but it's off the mark. And so we covered last week, so just kind of a quick recap, definition of a Christian cult is a, a group that would not only claim to be a pure expression of Christianity, but they claim to be the only, and tr- only true and exclusive expression of Christianity. We don't claim that here. We don't claim that we are exclusive. If you don't come to Calvary Chapel Orlando and you go somewhere else, they're not telling you the truth. There are many God-fearing people out there, God-fearing churches who love the Lord and are faithfully following Him, and they're our brothers and sisters. And they don't have to have the name Calvary Chapel on it. Secondly, the founders of the cult, they claim that they have rediscovered true Christianity by rediscovering either how to interpret the Bible or because they've received additional revelations from God. So that's what a Christian cult is. It's not just someone who disagrees with us on something. These are very specific definitions. Now, we studied from 1 John chapter 4, uh, looking at the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, and we have found two commands from God why it's important to study these things. Number one, we're commanded to not believe everyone who claims to speak for God, because there is both a spirit of truth and a spirit of error, the Holy Spirit and our enemy. He's the Holy Spirit's the spirit of truth. Jesus said that many times. We don't have anywhere the Bible says that Satan is the spirit of error, but Jesus and John makes it very clear that he is the liar from the beginning. He doesn't, the truth is not in him. So it makes sense that he fits that description. Now, the second command we have, second command we have is that we are to, whoa, don't get crazy, Will. We are to test the origin of all who claim to speak for God in order to determine if the origin of their message is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, or if it's the spirit of error. God tells us we have to do that. That's our responsibility as Christians. You can't just say, well, they say they're Christian, or they say they speak for God, so I I should listen to what they say. We are all commanded to not believe everyone who claims to speak for God, and two, to test the origin of all who do claim to speak for God. Now, how do we recognize the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error? We looked at that last week. It's by looking at the content of what a messenger says and the content of how they conduct their lives. And when a person's words and conduct accurately reflect the statement, Jesus the Messiah, the one who came in the flesh, then I can know that the Spirit of God sent them. When their words and conduct do not accurately reflect that statement, then I can know that Satan has sent them and I don't have to listen to them. So we're going to build on that now. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week we're going to talk about the importance of a fixed point of reference. The importance of a fixed point of reference. And we're going to discuss how cults deviate from the biblical fixed points of reference. And to do this, we're going to look at Acts 17 and examine Paul's teaching on Mars Hill. So if you'll turn to Acts 17 with me, we will do that. Now, our study is going to be in verses 24 through 27. But to give you a little bit of context, you read it in our scripture reading. Paul at this time is in the city of Athens. And even though Athens by this point had lost its political importance in the Roman Empire, in Greek society, Athens was still the religious, educational, and artistic seat of the Greek thinking world. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all taught here. 
The city had over 30,000 public statues. In fact, one Roman uh, satirist said it was easier to find a god in the city of Athens than it was a person. The idolatry of the city glared at Paul from every corner as he's waiting for the rest of his team to catch up to him in Athens because he'd been on the run. And so when he's just seeing all this idolatry all around him, he couldn't keep silent while he waited for them to arrive. And so he went into the marketplace, went into the synagogues to share the gospel. While Paul's in the marketplace, he bumps into two groups of people who had some very strange ideas about God and life. And so Paul told them the truth about Jesus. Some of them, they didn't want to hear anything he had to say. Oh, this guy's just he's talking nonsense. But others thought, well, maybe we need to add Jesus to our pantheon of gods. He's talking about new gods. Maybe we need to add Jesus to our pantheon. So they invited Paul up to Mars Hill so Paul could describe Christianity to all the intellectuals in the city, and then they would decide if what Paul said had merit. Now, Paul didn't care about Jesus getting a statue. That's not why he went up there. He was excited to preach the gospel to this very diverse group because the gathering contained a hodgepodge of ideas about God, about man, and about life. And so into that gathering, Paul inserts into that confusion about those issues, he inserts something clear, something concise, and something unmovable, a fixed point of reference. And what is a fixed point of reference? Well, a fixed point of reference has two requirements. First, it must be outside of me. I cannot be the fixed point of reference because I break the second part. I move. I move. I change throughout my life. I learn things. I grow in my understanding. I cannot be the fixed point of reference. Something outside of me needs to be the fixed point of reference. And secondly, it needs to stay where it is. It cannot move. Otherwise, it's not a fixed point of reference. Now, a good example of this is the North Star. Sailors could use an instrument called a sextant, and as long as they could see the North Star and the horizon, they could calculate exactly with the sextant where they were. If you remove the North Star, their fixed point of reference, none of that would be any good to them. They would no longer be able to know where they were. So this is the idea. We need something that doesn't move, something that's always going to be in that same spot that's outside of me that I can refer to that's fixed to know, okay, how do I relate to that? So what fixed points of reference does Paul give to this group of people? Well, he gives them four. So he starts in verse 24, and he says this. He's there in front of all these guys with all these hodgepodge of ideas. And he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life, all life and breath and all things. And he has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he's determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Paul gives a very clear and concise explanation of truth. And he starts with our fixed point of reference number one. And it's this, God is different than his creation. God is different than his creation. When he starts off here and he says, God that made the world and all things therein, literally means the God, the one making the universe. These great thinkers that Paul have gathered to hear Paul uh, 
they represented various ideas about the gods, about how the world came into being, how the universe came to being, and how, where man found his origin. But Paul gets very specific when he references truth. One God made the universe and everything in it, including humanity. That is a fixed point of reference. One God made the universe and everything in it, including humanity. And that means that there is a vast difference between creator and creation, between God and humanity. That is our first fixed point of reference. And why is that an important truth? Well, it means that any ideas or concepts about God that make Him equal to us or less than us cannot be true. Any ideas that make God equal to me or less than me cannot be true. Now, to show how cults deviate from this fixed point of reference, I'm going to read you some quotes from their founder, Joseph Smith, and his successor, Brigham Young. The first set of quotes I'm going to read are going to show how they taught that God was no different than man. Here's the first one. And Joseph Smith said, God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. I am going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute this idea and take away the veil so that you may see. Here's another one. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another and that he was once a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. And I will show it from the Bible. No, you won't. Here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God. That is in the Bible. And you have got to learn how to be gods yourself, not in the Bible. And be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods that have gone before you. Namely, you do accomplish this by going from one small degree to another, and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead, and you're able to dwell in everlasting burnings, the fire that often we see surrounding God in the Bible, and to sit in glory, as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power, all the other gods who came before you. Now, These teachings very clearly say that God is no different than us. He's just further along in the process of exaltation. Now, the second set of quotes are going to show that this group taught that there was more than one God. Well, this is one more. The Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as a man's. That contradicts Jesus. He said, God is spirit. But here, this one shows that they believe in a plurality of gods. Joseph Smith said, if Jesus had a father, can we not believe that Jesus' father had a father also? Therefore, I will preach the plurality of the gods. And then lastly, Brigham Young, how many gods there are? I do not know, but there never was a time when there were not gods, plural, and worlds. Now, I can say with absolute confidence that the origin of every one of those teachings is the spirit of error because it deviates all of them from our first fixed point of reference, that God is different from all of his creation. He is different than us. Now, our second fixed point of reference is found in the rest of verse 24. God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, or literally, the one who has made the world and the heavens, he continually exists as Lord of heaven and earth. The word Lord means ruler, master, 
one who commands and exercises authority over another. Paul is again very specific, very specific. This one God is the owner and ruler who possesses authority over everything in the universe, including our planet and everything in it. Now, if this one God rules over His creation and gives commands to His creation, that means He has established a fixed moral standard which His creation must live by, right? I mean, He can't rule and just have it be a free-for-all. If He rules, that means there are standards. That means that God's fixed moral standard cannot rest in a human being. It must be found in something outside of a human being. And that fixed moral standard is found in the words of God, not in the words of people or a group of people. Now, since God's words are the absolute authority for life, we would expect to find some record of God's communication to humanity. And that's where the Bible comes in. We have a record of God's moral standard. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, inspiration is described to us this way. It tells us, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, a private origin. In other words, it doesn't originate from any, from any human being or any groups of human beings. It has to originate from God. And then it tells us how that works. For the prophecy came not in any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the source of all of the words of God are God Himself, right? They have to be, otherwise they're not the words of God, they're the words of human beings. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us the same idea. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It comes, it's breathed by God, and therefore it's profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And then way back in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, it says, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. The Bible is a reliable account of God's communication to His creation, and therefore is the standard and final authority for life. That standard and final authority for life cannot be someone who claims to be God's prophetess or claims to be God's modern-day apostles. This is our second fixed point of reference. God is the absolute authority, and He has given us His Word, which is something outside of us that is and doesn't move, that we can always… People say, well, the Bible needs to be understood in light of the times it's in. No, it doesn't. Then it's a moving target. It's no longer a fixed point of reference. Go grab, go grab the newspaper and make it your Bible because this cannot move and still be authoritative. So we have a fixed point of reference, the Word of God, spoken under the authority of God. Now, to show how cults deviate from this fixed point of reference, I'm going to share with you how membership works in the Church of Christ International. Church of Christ International, all new converts are assigned a discipler. Submission to this mature believer is absolute. If they tell you that you need to get a divorce, quit your job, or drop out of school, you must comply with them or you will lose your salvation. Now, these disciplers are all discipled themselves by someone called a Bible talk leader. These Bible talk leaders are all discipled by zone evangelists. And all zone evangelists are discipled directly by church leader Kit McKean or his elders. So where does the authority lie? With people, 
All authority rests with this group of leaders. You cannot appeal to anything that is outside of what they say. That is a problem. I can say with absolute confidence that the origin of that teaching is the spirit of error because it falls short of our second fixed point of reference that God is the absolute authority over his creation. Therefore, I can always appeal to God's words when someone who claims to represent God says they have a message from God for me. I'm so thankful. It hasn't happened often over the years, thankfully, but I'm so thankful when there's times I've said something that was off or a little off that someone's come to me and said, hey, well, you know, how does this jive with this verse? Or how does this mix with this? Or I know you said this, but it seems to, the Bible says this. And I'm like, whoa, you know what? I, I think I messed that up. You're right. I'm not the authority at Calvary Chapel Orlando. God is. He is. This is the fixed point of reference, not me. I am a moving target. I have good days and bad days. I'm still learning. I'm not the authority. I'm not the final word. The Scriptures are. Now, in addition to this, I want to share with you another group, how Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, how he deviates from this fixed point of reference. So, go ahead here. Russell says this, furthermore, and this refers to, referring to the concern that he had because when people read their, just their Bible instead of reading it with his commentaries. He says, furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself. That's a problematic statement in and of itself. Not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the Scripture studies, that's his six-volume set of teachings, if they let, set those aside, even after he's used them, his, his commentaries, even after he's used them, after he's become familiar with them, after he has read them for 10 years, if he lays them aside and ignores them and then just goes to the Bible alone, though he has understood his Bible correctly in his mind, understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years, he goes into darkness. In other words, when you set aside, some of you know this, you know, some of you set aside, you know, if, if they set aside my teachings, we find that in two years, they're, they're in darkness now. They don't have everything right, anything right anymore. On the other hand, if he had merely read the Scripture studies with their references and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light at the end of two years. And you can read it right there, Kindle edition. That quote comes right out of those books, six-volume set. I can say with absolute confidence that the origin of Charles Russell's teaching is the spirit of error because it falls short of our second fixed point of reference, that God's words are the absolute authority, not man's. You don't need my words about God's words. You need God's word. And as much as possible, my job is to give you God's Word. Anyone here teaching you is to give you God's Word. Our third fixed point of reference is God's nature. God's nature. Now, Paul goes on to say, first off, God that made the world and all, the thi all things therein. He is creator. We are creation. We are different. And then seeing that He is the Lord of heaven and earth, He is the final authority. Then it says, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. We already know that the one God who made everything isn't like us, but what is he like? Well, the nature of God is our third fixed point of reference. And Paul brings up three important truths about the nature of God. 
He starts off here by explaining that God is omnipresent. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He doesn't live or reside in human temples. Neither is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. God is omnipresent. He existed before creation, and therefore he cannot be limited to a singular location like we are. So God certainly doesn't live in this building or any other building on earth. Nor is God limited to residing in a physical representation of him. He's not worshiped with men's hands. In other words, an idol. It's not like if you make a little idol and you turn it, you know, say, hey, this is my God, this is God, and you set it down there, and God's like, oh, I guess I'm stuck in there. It's like if you leave for the day, he's like, wait, if you don't take me, I can't help. That is not how he works. He is omnipresent. He is not limited to residing in a physical representation of him that is created by those who worship him. In other words, God is not only omnipresent, but God is also self-defining. When we talk about the idea of making an idol, that's us making God in how we conceive him to be. But that's not how we define God. God is self-defining. God is not my opinion of God. He declared to Moses at the burning bush when he says, what's going on? He goes, I am that I am. Whom shall I say has sent me? Tell them I am that I am has sent me. It's not the one you define. Be like, you know, it's not like Moses going, ah, maybe he's like in his burning bush. Maybe he's like the God of the elements. Maybe he's the God of fire. Maybe he's the God of, you know, passion burning. Maybe he's the God of destruction. Fire destroys. Like Moses didn't have to figure this out on his own. Whom shall I say has sent me? Tell them I am that I am has sent you. I am who I am. I define who I am, not you. God is self-defining. God didn't declare to him on the burning bush, I am whatever you think I am, or I am whatever you imagine me to be. If I want to know what God is like, I don't have to look inside myself. I don't look inside myself. I look to who God has explained himself to be. He is self-defining and he defines it in his word. Lastly, it mentions here, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. God doesn't lack something. He's the one, he's the one who gives life, breath, and everything to us. God is also self-existent. He has life in and of himself, and he always has. He isn't a created being. He's the creator. We don't supply anything he is lacking because he needs nothing and never has needed anything. Now, if he's the one who gives us life, he's the one who supplies all these things, then that means life and salvation do not come through an organization. They do not come through a group of founders or a leader who has received visions. Life and salvation comes from the one who possesses life in and of himself. It's a gift that God gives to us. Now, there are many other attributes of God's nature that we learn from the Bible. And when any teaching deviates from those fixed point of references about who God is, how the Bible defines God to be, then we know it's not true. But to show how cults deviate from our third fixed point of reference, I want to read you a quote from the Watchtower booklet called The Finished Mystery. It was published in 1917. And it says regarding Jesus' claim in the book of Revelation that he's the Alpha and Omega, the quote says this, our Lord's great honor is shown in that he was not only the first of God's creation, but the last. In other words, Jesus is a created being just like us. 
there are problems with that statement. If Jesus is God and he's self-existent, self-defining, and he's omnipresent, then he can't be created. So what does the Bible say? Is Jesus God? Well, in Isaiah 44, 6, and we'll be using this technique quite a few times when we get to some of the aberrant teaching that you find in some of the cults. But we want to match a claim that Jesus makes with a claim that God makes about himself and see that the two are inseparable. In Isaiah 44, 6, and then if you want to also turn to Revelation twenty two thirteen, so that's one should be easier to find, last chapter in the Bible. And just kind of keep both spots open because we're going to compare. Isaiah 44, 6 and Revelation twenty two thirteen, And Isaiah 44, 6 makes it very clear who's speaking here, right? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Like that's, we're not, we don't have to guess the identity of the state, who's making the statement here, right? Very clear. And what does the Lord, the King of Israel, say? I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no, what does it say? No God. All right. So when we define who is the first and who is the last, that's just, that's God and that's it, right? That's it. Now turn over to Revelation 22, 13. Now, we know it's Jesus speaking because your Bible has red text. Just kidding. That's not how John wrote it. We know it's the Lord. He quotes, he says the same exact thing in Revelation 1, but I'm, I'm using it here because it's more concise. We know it's Jesus. And he, has, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the what and the what? The first and the last. Isaiah 44, 6 says, God says, there's no God beside me. I'm the first and the last. All right, got it. God is the first and the last, and there are no other gods. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. That only has two possible outcomes. If no one but God can be the first and the last, then Jesus is either a liar or he's God, right? It can't be anything in between. He's either a liar or he's God. Now, of course, we believe he's God. And if Jesus is God, then he cannot be a created being. He is self-existent. So I can say with absolute confidence, absolute confidence, that the origin of the Watchtower's teaching in this pamphlet is the spirit of error. I can say it with absolute confidence. It falls short of our third fixed point of reference concerning God's nature as self-existent, and is therefore we reject it as false teaching. Now, Our fourth fixed point of reference is in verses 26 and 27 of Acts 17. So back to Acts. 26 and 27. Paul says, God is our creator. We are his creation. He's different from us. He says he's the final authority, and his nature is one where he's omnipresent, he's self-existent, and he's self-defining. I don't get to just write whatever I want to write and say, well, He's the first of creation. That's what it means when he's the first. And he's also the, which by the way, I don't even understand the logic of that. He's also the last of creation. Is Jesus created twice. I don't want to pretend to try to even go into that. But I don't just get to make a statement like that. When I say something like that, everyone's supposed to go, nope, 
That's not true. That didn't come from God because it contradicts what God says about his nature. Our fourth fixed point of reference is that God has, he has a purpose and a plan for his creation. Paul goes on to say, and he, the one God out there who created everything, he made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all face of the earth. And he determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The phrase there of one blood, it literally means from out of one man. God made all of us, all nations from out of one man and for the purpose of dwelling on all the face of the earth. And he has, it says, determined the times before appointed. It literally just means he has assigned and arranged periods of time for, it says, the bounds of their habitation, the fixed limits for them to live in. In other words, God had a plan for what people were going to go where and where they were going to hang out and how their culture would develop in the sense of the characteristics and the traits of their personality. I have certain characteristics and traits that are are a part of my upbringing, and God's the one who picked for me to be in the family that influenced me that way. That's why if you're a young person and you think to yourself, you know, you know, I, don't, you know I don't understand, you know, you know my, my parents, this and that, the other thing, at some point your problem isn't with your mom and your dad. At some point your problem is with God because you didn't pick him and no one else did either. He did. And at some point, whether our parents are good or bad or we like what they did or don't like what they did, we have to come to grips with that, that God's the one who picked them. He's the one who created each one of us. He picked the time we'd be born in. He picked when we would be and where we would be and how we would be. Now, this one God, therefore, this means that this one God who created everything had a plan, right? He had a plan when he made us that extended beyond just his initial creation. God did not just come and go, blammo, here's an earth and I made it all and I'm the final authority and here's my rules and see you later. He's been intimately involved every step of the way with each of our lives. This means that our God, is, this one God is not distant, but has been, currently is, and always will be active in his creation, which means my life and your life too. So what is this creator God's plan as it concerns his creation, as it concerns humanity? Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. This is our fourth fixed point of reference. We were created with definite intent and purpose. Our lives have meaning. Therefore, we are not an accident, nor is it okay for us to do what we wish with the life that God gave to us. We exist for a reason, and it tells us right here, to know him to seek Him, to know Him, to have a relationship with Him. Now, how does a person enter into a relationship with God? Well, the Bible tells us, by repenting of our sins and placing our trust in Jesus and what He did for us on the cross. Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, Paul says, where did this righteousness that comes by faith, where did it come from? You know, it, it, it speaks in this wise, don't say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? How do we enter this relationship with God? How do we get right with God? What it says is the word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. 
That is the word of faith which we preach. And what is that word of faith? That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Like that's not confusing. It's concise. It's the fixed point of reference. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, that his highest prize, the one thing he is stretching forward to reach, is knowing Jesus, right? That's his goal, right? Knowing Jesus. So when we look at our fourth fixed point of reference, when we ask ourselves, what, why did God make us? What was his purpose and plan for us? It was to know him, to know him. We are created with definite intent and purpose. Our lives have meaning, and it's found in knowing Him. Now, to show how cults deviate from our fourth fixed point of reference, I'm going to share from you a quote from LDS apostle Bruce McConkie when he gave a speech to BYU on March 2nd, 1982. And I try to do this whenever people, we had recordings of these things. So these are quotes that are written before we had recordings, but this one is a recording. It's a little lengthy, but listen to it. Now I know that some may be offended at the council that they should not strive for a special and personal relationship with Christ. It will seem to them as though I am speaking out against mother love or Americanism or the little red schoolhouse, but I am not. There is a fine line here over which true worshipers will not step. It is true that there may, with propriety, be a special relationship with a wife, with children, with friends, with teachers, with the beasts of the field and the fowls of the sky and the lilies of the valley. But the very moment anyone singles out one member of the Godhead as as the almost sole recipient of his devotion, to the exclusion of the others, that is the moment when spiritual instability begins to replace sense and reason. The proper course for all of us is to stay in the mainstream of the Church. This is the Lord's Church, and it is led by the spirit of inspiration. And the practice of the Church constitutes the interpretation of the Scripture. And you have never heard one of the First Presidency or the Twelve who hold the keys of the kingdom and who are appointed to see that we are not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You have never heard one of them advocate this excessive zeal that calls for gaining a so-called special and personal relationship with the Lord. You have heard them teach and testify of the ministry and mission of the Lord Jesus, using the most persuasive and powerful language at their command. But never, never at any time have they taught or endorsed the inordinate and intemperate zeal that encourages endless, sometimes day-long prayers in order to gain a personal relationship with the Savior. That thing is packed with nonsense. There are parts of that that if you're not familiar with the LDS Church and how they set things up, you might have missed some of it. He talked about the First Presidency and the Council. That's their apostles. He says, you have never heard one of us say that you need to strive for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And because we're the source, we hold the keys of the kingdom, we're the ones who keep you from getting tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, like I talked about this morning, because we're the ones, because you've never heard us say that, that means that if you're going to go that route, you are straying from the true church. That's what he said. He says, now I know some may be offended at the counsel that they should not strive for a special and personal relationship with Christ. Yeah, I am offended by that because the Bible tells us that's what I was made for. You have never heard one of the first presidents of the 12 advocate this excessive zeal that calls for gaining a so-called special and personal relationship with Christ. Yes, because you're teaching lies. He goes on to say later in that speech, I wonder if it is not part of Lucifer's system to make people feel they are special friends of Jesus when in fact they are not following the normal and usual pattern of worship found in the true church, which is what they establish to be the case. Well, that is not Lucifer's system. I can say with absolute confidence that the origin of Mr. McConkie's teaching is the spirit of error because it goes against our fixed point of reference. When we talk about another concept of this fixed point of reference, that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, we see some other places that cults deviate from this. In the Book of Mormon, this is one of the four books that the LDS Church believes are inspired Scripture. So not just the Bible, but this book too. 2 Nephi 25-23 in the Book of Mormon says this, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That's problematic on multiple levels, on a logical level, and then also on a biblical level. That is not what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. Another one of their writings, the Doctrines and Covenants, in chapter 93, verses 19 and 20, says this, for if you keep my commandments, the Lord continued, so this is him receiving visions from, Joseph Smith receiving visions from the Lord, for if you keep my commandments, God speaking to him, the Lord continued, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. That's, again, an oxymoron. You can't say that if you keep my commandments, you get a free gift. It's not free if you have to do something to get it. So I can say with absolute confidence that these other scriptures are also the spirit of error because they all fall short of our fourth fixed point of reference that God designed us to have a relationship with him and that we experience that relationship with him by trusting in Christ alone. Now, when we deviate or don't have any fixed point of references, we deviate from the ones that are in the Bible or we don't have any, it creates serious problems with how we try to relate to God. Number one, as you you read those last two scriptures, their scriptures, you stray from truth into confusion. Like, how does that even make sense? For by grace you are saved after all you can do. Well, which one is it? Is it, is it, I just do, an, I have to make sure I do enough? Like, or is it grace? Because grace is grace. Look at Romans eleven six with me. Romans eleven six. It's a really important text. I love how God kind of anticipates how we're going to mess things up. 
And he decides ahead of time, I'm going to lay it out really clear and plain so you can't do this. We still do it, but it's because we ignore what he says. So referring to salvation, in Romans eleven six, Paul says this, and if it's by grace, if by grace, if salvation is by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Do you see how when you don't have a fixed point of reference or you ignore it, you stray from truth into confusion? The Bible says that grace and works are mutually exclusive as a means for salvation. So you can't have a statement from God that says, oh, by grace are you saved after you do, after all you can do. Those are, that's like water and oil. They're not, they cannot, you can't just mix them together like that. They're meant to be separate and they will stay separate as it regards salvation. Not only do you stray from truth into confusion, but you lose morality because now there's no standard to judge things by. And as we'll look at later on, we'll look at some of these organizations, they're riddled with sexual sin, they're riddled with violence, they're riddled with abuse. You stray from truth into confusion, you lose morality, you also open yourself up to tyranny from those who hold power. All of you, at any point, if I start losing my stuff, you can appeal to this. And truth be told, get rid of me. Get someone up here who will teach this instead of their own ideas. But if I'm the authority, you now open yourself up to tyranny. And then, lastly, you also create points of tension. See, what's a point of tension? Well, it's a contradiction within a single statement. People do it all the time and don't even realize it. For example, you ever heard the phrase, there's no absolutes? That's an absolute. That's a point of tension. Like, like that, you can't say that. Or, you shouldn't impose your morals on me. That statement's imposing a moral. You create your own reality. If that's the case, then my Christian worldview is the byproduct of your reality, so why are you upset at me? Or to use an example from the quotes I gave tonight from Doctrines and Covenants, a book Mormons consider to be infallible Holy Scripture and the basis of what they believe, if you keep my commandments, you shall receive grace for grace. That's an oxymoron because grace means an unearned gift. The idea of keeping commandments to experience grace is an illogical fallacy, or is a logical fallacy. You can't, it, you can't say that. So where does this leave us? Well, some questions that you want to ask about a group if you're concerned, or they say, oh, you know, someone's going to this church, or someone's doing the, involved in this movement, and you don't know what it is. You never heard of it before, and you want to check it out. Well, number one, look for what, ask the question, what do they teach about God's nature and God's person? What do they teach about God's nature and what do they teach about God's person? Do they say that he's self-existent, self-defining, and omnipresent, and omnipotent, and all the, all the other things that the Bible teaches about God's nature, that he's triune? We'll get into that next week. Next week, we're going to look at all the things that the main doctrines that cults mess with, and we'll give you some examples of, of the key doctrines that you can that answer some of these questions. What do they teach about God's nature and person? Secondly, you can ask, what place do they give to God's authority over his creation? Is he the absolute authority, or do they have some group in their organization that is the absolute authority? 
What place do they give to Jesus, to his blood and to the cross? What do they say about those things? And is it, does it have a high place? Or do their works have a high place? What do they teach about man, sin, and repentance? I remember one of the most sad things was we had a friend of ours, uh, a friend of ours at, at work that went into the LDS church because the LDS church convinced her that, well, your parents aren't going to go to hell if they don't accept Jesus. We don't believe in hell like that. And she didn't want to think her parents would go to hell since they weren't believers. And so she decided, well, I'm rather going to go here. I don't have to worry about my folks every night. And then lastly, what do they teach about sources of truth and God's plan for his creation? If they deviate in any way from what Paul taught in Acts 17, you can know that the source is a spirit of error and you should not listen to what they're teaching. Okay? So this is a good spot to go back to when you kind of get yourself in a place where you're like, what do I do? These people are saying weird things. Go back to Acts 17 and say, what did Paul say about God? What did Paul say about us? And what did Paul say about us and God and how it works together? And you can kind of get your moorings. You get your north star. You get your spot where you can go, where am I right now in this weird conversation? And you get your feet on some solid ground. You go, all right, I may not know how to answer all your questions, but I know this. This doesn't change. And some of the things you're saying, they go against that. And so maybe I can't answer all your questions, but I can know that this is what's true and is immovable. And very often, I think of the story in John chapter 9 with the, uh, the man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him. And they keep trying to get him to basically disown Jesus, you know, critique Jesus. And so finally he says to him, he goes, listen, I don't know if he's good or bad. All I know is this, I was once blind, and now I can see. There was a simple truth that they were all ignoring a simple thing that happened, a powerful simple thing, but a simple basic concept that everyone around him was ignoring that made him the smartest guy in the room, even though he may have been the least spiritually knowledgeable. He said, I know what happened here. I know a truth here. I don't know about this, that, and the other thing, but I know this. Something that I was blind and now I can see. That is real to me right now. That's a fact. And he said this, when has it ever been heard of that anyone beside God opened the eyes of the blind? And so his conclusion was, based on a fact, a thing that was true, absolutely true, he goes, I think he's from the Lord. Now, so even after they excommunicated him, Jesus went and found him because he was in the right. So this is our fixed point of reference, the word of God, the truth that it teaches us. You find your ground there, and that's the place where you can be assured of where you're at and also be able to begin asking questions about where others are at if it's sounding weird. So, anyway, let's pray. Let's all stand. I've gone on long enough, so. Lord, we thank you for your servant Paul and, and, and Lord, that you inspired him to speak those words to a group that had a lot of strange ideas, a lot of varying ideas. Lord, we don't have to be confused. We can know certain things for sure. And so, Lord, help us to be those who study the Scriptures so we can find these fixed point of references, Lord, that we know, hey, this is absolutely true.
Help us to see them and understand them and then be able to fall back on them. We are confronted with things we don't understand to fall back on what we know to be absolutely true. And that's our, our resting place, our firm foundation. And that way, Lord, when someone interacts with us that's off, not only are we protected from being led astray, but with love and with grace and with truth, we can preach the gospel to them, the good news that they need to hear. So Lord, we thank you for your word and pray you continue to equip us on this topic in Jesus' name, amen.